You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM, Many Voices, Community Radio. This is the story behind the story. I'm Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is M.K. England, author of The Disasters, a heartwarming and hilarious novel about a group of teenage Space Academy washouts who are forced to step up and save the world. The Disasters has been hailed for its strong feminist messages and highly diverse cast of characters, and I'm thrilled to have M.K. England with me today. M.K. England, welcome to the story behind the story. Thanks for having me. So why don't you start by telling, telling our audience a little bit about yourself. Who is M.K. England? M.K. England is a giant nerd. Um, <laughs> that, that's basically the summary. Um, my day job is being a YA librarian, which gels really nicely with writing YA novels. Um, and in my spare time, I do a lot of gaming. I play Dungeons & Dragons. I play video games. I do tabletop board gaming, all of that stuff. Um, and I also hike and garden because being outside is like really critical to my mental health. So those are some of my other big hobbies. What made you want to be a writer? I have been sort of obsessed with story for as long as I can remember. Um, I became a big reader in elementary school and just never stopped. And I was always scribbling little ideas down here and there, but I was always just way too afraid to actually share anything with anybody. Honestly, I was too afraid to really work on anything um, because it just required a level of like personal buy-in that I didn't believe I was like worthy of or capable of. So I just, I had all these things swimming around in my head and I just never was able to pursue them. But story has always been a really critical part of making me feel like who I am. You know, stories especially like big dramatic adventure stories, kind of like The Disasters is, um, made me feel like really powerful and ambitious. Like there was this whole universe out there that I could take on. And I I definitely don't think I would have gotten this far in life without those kinds of stories to inspire me. What was the thing that changed that allowed you to go from being a writer who wrote sort of tentatively, who was afraid to share their work with other people to someone who could be a published author and now is. It was a complicated evolution. Um, I am the living embodiment of, you know, the concept that the brain doesn't finish developing until 25. I don't recommend myself (laughs) before age 25. I'm surprised you still talk to me since we met, uh, you know, way back when I was maybe 22 at the height of my terribleness. Um, So I think I really just had a lot of growing up to do. And I really needed to work through some of my anxiety issues. Um, I can pretty clearly remember a day where I just got very sick of myself and was like, you know, I, I hate not being able to do this thing that I love and that I want so badly to do. So I am just going to sit down and do it, damn it. <laughs> um, and I set myself a deadline. I kind of did NaNoWriMo in February because um, I just wanted it done. So I said, I'm going to wake up at five in the morning every single day this month and I am going to finish this book if it kills me. Um, And I think I got there through a little piece of writing advice through Maggie Stiefvater's blog. Um, I had recently done a deep dive into her archives and found this this little line that said something along the lines of, you know, I wrote my first book, you know, from 4 to 6 p.m. every Wednesday, and it took me three months. And I was like, 
my god, books are a finite thing. <laughs> and if you just like put little bits of work in, it adds up and suddenly a book appears. Um, so, you know, I had heard that before, but sometimes just hearing things, you know, that thousandth time, yeah, it finally clicked for me. Which aspects of writing, so like plot setting characters, are the things that come naturally to you and which ones are the ones that you struggle with more? Ooh. See, every time I think I have identified a strength or something that uh, comes more naturally to me, uh, something will turn around and be like, no, no, actually, that's going to be the worst thing for this particular project. For instance, it used to be my trend that I always nailed beginnings. Um, the first chapter of The Disasters is almost identical to the first draft back in 2014. It's changed very little. And everything I've worked on since then has been the same except for my second book that's coming out in January 2020. I rewrote that first chapter four times, and it was completely different every time because I just couldn't nail it. So I think there is no such thing as like a, a total consistency or a total strength. I think in general, I really like writing dialogue and humor. Um, that's something that, you know, I just love to sink into the voice of my characters. And I think pacing, my my sort of natural tendency is toward very fast-paced books. So I, I think I understand that sort of fast-paced story structure well. Um, if you ask me to write like a slow contemplative literary novel, I would crash and burn very hard. Um, but I do feel like maybe writing fast-paced action stories is more my strength. And what are the things that that you've had to work on? I think digging really deep into character motivations um, has been tough for me. Um, emotions are hard and scary, and I try not to look at them too hard. So that doesn't translate very well when you're trying to write fiction. <laughs> um, I, you know, in general, people seem to like my ensemble casts, and I love writing big groups and, you know, friendships and things like that. Um, but when it comes to like really drilling down deep into one character's psyche, I find that challenging. Um, I think I did a much better job with it in my second book, actually. And I think that's one of the reasons that the main character in that book is now my favorite character I've ever written. Because I just deeply know her issues. <laughs> um, with Nax, it really took me several drafts and working with my editor at Harper Teen to finally like get at what I was trying to say in a way that made sense to other people. You know, my brain was filling in the gaps for me. I knew what I was trying to say, but like conveying that to other people, you know, because other people's emotions don't work the same way as mine. So the, the logical leaps just aren't always there. That was a struggle for me. So tell me about some of your favorite books. Oh gosh, so many. So cruel. How could you? <laughs> well, you don't have to pick um, one. <laughs> <laughs> um, good, because I never could. Um, I'm in the middle of reading N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy, which is like the most stunning thing I have ever read. Um, I just finished book two, and I'm just constantly blown away with every new chapter. So I can't wait to dive into book three. I actually don't read a whole lot of adult uh, fiction, so that was something that really stuck out for me. Um, I also 
absolutely loved Lady's Guide to Petticoats and Piracy, which came out this year. It was the sequel to The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue by Mackenzie Lee, and I highly recommend both of those books. Like, please do yourself a favor and go read them. Um, oh gosh, there's been so many good books this year, but that's like what's right on the tip of my brain. What was your first favorite book? Ooh, I can't remember back when I was a really young child. I, I mean, I know I absolutely zipped through all of the Animorphs books and Junior Jedi Knights and things like that. But the first series I remember being really obsessed with was the X-Wing books uh, by Michael A. Stackpole. It starts with Rogue Squadron. Um, those are the books that taught me how to write space piloting. And I loved the characters. Um, you know, I loved the ensemble dynamic of a squadron um, so much. I, I reread those books until they fell apart. I also was really obsessed with Ender's Game to the point where, you know, when my family finally got our first computer uh, in middle school, that was one of the first things I did was I was Googling Orson Scott Card and going to his website and then being really crushed when, like, poor baby gay, like, found out that Orson's, Orson Scott Card is horrifically homophobic. Um, that was a big, big disappointment in my teenage years, but... Um, Ender's Game, that entire series, um, both the main series and the series focused on Bean, those were really big books for me. When you're reading, how does a book hook you? For me, I think it's all about voice. Um, I've got to have a character whose voice is just so solid and grabs me from page one and carries me through. Um, I can read something that is much more slow paced than I normally would like if the character's voice is so clear. And that's so hard to like put my finger on like, well, what do you mean by voice? Like, mm, I know it when I see it, but it's really hard to put into words. So, I, I mean, I asked you about your favorite books, but is there a particular character from a book that you really remember identifying with early on? This was not uh, necessarily a character who I identified with because of like who he is or anything, but there is, again, we're going back to Star Wars books. Um, there's a book called I, Jedi that uh, like in hindsight, I think is sort of generally regarded as like not a great entry into the Star Wars extended universe, but I loved it as a teenager. And it was the first book that I ever read that was in first person that I liked. I hated first person point of view before that, which is funny because now it's all I write. But in that story, you could see so deeply into the main character's head and you could see him calling himself on his own bull. Like you could see him just like analyzing his own thought processes and being like, mm, don't try and justify what you're doing. Like, you know, you know what's actually going on here and you're trying to like mentally work your way around it. And that was my first time that I ever realized, like, oh, my God, your brain can lie to you, <laughs> which, of course, like critical revelation for later on down the road. <laughs> How have the books you've read influenced your writing? I think every book I read, I take something a little different away. And sometimes it'll be something really small such as, you know, I, I really like how this author used this one word in this one context and it just sets something off for me. Or, you know, I really like, again, how space piloting was written in this one book or how this character's sort of internal struggle was portrayed in this book over here. 
Um, so there's just like little tiny cherry picking from everything I read. I'm constantly learning from every single book that I pick up. How has becoming a writer, like doing this professionally, changed your relationship with reading? <laughs> Honestly, it's kind of ruined it a little bit, um, which <laughs> sounds terrible. But um, I do 95% of my reading in audiobooks now, and it might even be more than 95%, um, because I can't stop and pick things apart when it's on audio and when I have it turned up to one and a half times speed. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is how I have to read these days. Um, and it's partially because of time. You know, I most of my reading time is while I'm commuting or while I'm doing dishes or whatever else. Um, I can listen to an audio book while my hands are occupied. Um, but I have found that I really can't sit down and focus on a print book the way I used to. And I'm sure part of that is like general life distraction. Um, but part of it is definitely that I can't stop looking at the sentences and going like, mm, I would have rearranged that sentence. I would have moved that comma over here. Mm, I don't think that dialogue quite sounds natural. And I'm like, oh, dear God, stop it and just enjoy the book. <laughs> The Disasters is a young adult science fiction novel, yet um, it seems like it's appealing to a much wider audience than that would suggest. Why do you think that is? Oh, thank you. Um, I think some of the themes in there are pretty universal. And I think at this point, we're almost conditioned to look at that kind of space opera and like be willing to sink into it. Like we've had Star Wars and Star Trek and Guardians of the Galaxy and you know we're we've become used to this genre as sort of an all ages like blockbuster movie kind of experience that everybody can have. So I think it's easy to sort of look past um, the age and just sort of sink into that kind of that world and that experience. Um, but really I think anybody can identify with that need for, you know, a found family outside your blood family. And um, that struggle to find yourself is like, that's not solely like a, a you know, YA doesn't own that. Um, that is a thing that like, we're constantly trying to redefine ourselves no matter what age we are. And so I think that's why YA novels in general are so widely read by adults. We just, we never stop questioning who we are and trying to find our place in the galaxy and all of that. Um, and, you know, I think everybody needs to laugh and have fun and, you know, sink into something a little lighter once in a while. When you think of your audience, who do you see? Who do you imagine? Kind of imagine me as a teenager, which might sound a little narcissistic, but... Um, this is the kind of book that I would have wanted. Um, I loved action-packed space adventures, but they all featured like straight, white, cis, neurotypical dudes. And like, I had such a complicated relationship with that as a young person because I didn't really have words for like my experience of gender or anything at the time. So I was just like, I, I hate that all of these books are full of dudes. And I also hate that I'm not a dude so that I can't do all of these things. And, you know, I can't identify with femininity, but I don't want to be a dude either. And so like, where are my books? And writing the disasters was sort of cathartic because I could just fill it full of queer characters. And 
put the power in different hands because like the idea of 200 years in Earth's future, the galaxy still being saved by a straight white dude just like makes me feel dead inside. So I had to do something else. So what do you hope those those uh, teenage youths uh, will get out of reading The Disasters? First and foremost, I hope they will have a good time and be lightened and, you know, take a moment away from how dark and heavy the world is right now and just have that moment to be transported and see themselves saving the galaxy, you know? But ultimately, I hope they just see that they have a place in the future and that they have power and they can own that power and go out and make big changes. You know, I hope that the disasters will do for them what books did for me as a kid, you know, making me feel ambitious and powerful and like I can go out and do all the things and take on the world. I'm Clara Shirley Appel, and this is the story behind the story. We're going to take a short break, then we'll return to my conversation with MK England. Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Tune into our award-winning morning news program right here during primetime, 8 o'clock weekday mornings, right here on K-Squid, on KSQD. Our independent news program offers diverse perspectives, unique opinions unheard in the mainstream media, live as the news unfolds. Tune in for Democracy Now!, The War and Peace Report, weekday mornings at 8, right here on KSQD Community Radio, 90.7 FM. You're listening to the story behind the story on KSQD 90.7 FM, Santa Cruz. For those of you just joining us, my guest is M.K. England, author of The Disasters. Where did the idea for The Disasters come from originally? Like, How did it start? All my ideas start as kind of like a weird little random seed that just pops into my brain from nowhere. Um, and it'll be something super tiny and vague. Um, for this one, it was a hotshot pilot fails out of an academy on his first day. Um, there's no story there. There's no character even, really. There's there's nothing going on there. Um, so I just have a Google Doc that is full of little seeds like that. And they just sit in that Google Doc for weeks or months or years until the right catalyst comes along. And for this book, that catalyst was Guardians of the Galaxy. I saw Guardians of the Galaxy in the theater in summer of 2014. And something about the tone of that movie or the voice of Peter Quill or something um, just set it off. And I was like, now I have a direction for this. It's not like the plot and everything instantly popped into my head or anything. Like, I absolutely do not work like that. I am much more of like a workhorse writer where I sit down and outline everything and all of that. I am not a stroke of genius kind of person. Um, but... You know, I did need to get that voice solidly in my head. And after seeing that movie, I was like, now I can hear Nax. Now I know who he is, at least to a degree. Now I can tell his story. So there's that word again, voice. That's the same thing you said you looked for in in books, the thing that hooks you. I know. It's it's such a, an elusive concept that I, I'm going to try my best to, like, encapsulate. Um, it is some combination of speech patterns and worldview and, you know, a certain sense of humor and, you know, all the little quirks of speech and behavior that make us who we are. You know, if you read an author's body of work, even across genres, across age categories, you can usually kind of pick something up and be like, mm, 
yeah, this is their novel, you know, even though it's totally different, I can still hear a little bit of the author's voice in there. Um, so there's that element of voice. And then there's also just the character's voice. How would you describe Nax's voice then? I think Nax is really filtering the world through his humor as a defense mechanism um, and through his all of his anxiety and self-doubt. Um, so everything that he goes through kind of bounces off that anxiety and then he'll make a sarcastic comment to sort of deflect that. Um, so that's kind of key to his voice in general and the way he kind of talks to himself inside his own head um, is really critical, I think, to the reader's perception of him. Um, he's very self-deprecating. He's very, you know, dry and sarcastic at times. But you can also see the genuine care coming through. Um, you know, he can be almost painfully earnest at times. And so all of those things together kind of make Nax's voice. But I think it's his humor and his sharpness that sort of grabs you at the start. Um, that's sort of the key to his voice. So if Nax came first, who came after? Hmm. I think the rest of the crew kind of came all at once. Um, because I'm a gamer, I tend to kind of build my adventuring party as a unit. <laughs> um, so I kind of like build them like D&D characters. Like, okay, now I need a healer and I need a like a, a mage <laughs> and I need like, where's my DPS and all of that. <laughs> Um, so in this case, I was like, all right, I need a navigator. I need somebody who can be sort of a doctor. I need somebody who can talk. You know, you always need the face in a heist. Um, so I kind of had these components that I wanted as part of this unit um, and then started to assign personalities and they sort of just like erupted from there. You know, once once I had like their little, you know, cornerstone, then they just sort of fleshed out from there. And how did the plot develop? I really built the plot for this one by asking a lot of what ifs. So I started out with that idea of, you know, hotshot pilot fails out of an academy on his first day. Okay, well, what does he do then? He can't just go back to Earth because that's boring. There's no story there. So let's say he needs to go out into space somewhere. Okay, if he goes out into space, then there needs to be a place for him to go to. Um, what happens when he gets there? Um... You know, and just from there, sort of unspooling a bit at a time. Honestly, this was so long ago at this point. This was four years ago that I wrote the first draft, almost to the day. Um, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't totally remember how the early part of the plot came together. But I do remember that I rewrote the third quarter of this book like four times because I could not get it right. And it changed drastically every single time, like 50% to 75%. <laughs> Couldn't get it right. So you've been an active participant in several, you mentioned NaNoWriMo, in several National Novel Writing Months. Um, how do you prepare for something like that? And how has that experience shaped you as a writer? It really helped me hone my process, I think. Um, NaNoWriMo is not for everybody. Um, it works well for me because I'm a binge drafter. I can't sort of sit there and quietly noodle away at something for three months. Like, I need to just bang out the story. 
But before I do any of that, I am a thorough outliner. I have to know from beginning to end what's going to happen, and especially the ending. Um, I totally admire writers who can sit down at a blank page and just sort of start writing and be like, oh, the characters will take me where I need to go. I don't know how it's going to end, but I'll find out when I get there. And I'm like, that is terrifying. <laughs> I could never do that. And I'm a very sort of external processor. So I have to sit down with a critique partner and verbally bounce ideas around and solve plot problems. And, you know, I usually say, okay, here is a problem that I'm trying to solve. We discard the first few solutions that come out because they're always the most obvious or the most like borrowed from other things and then start to dig into the more interesting things and formulate an outline from there. And so that's how I start every NaNoWriMo is with a thorough outline of what I want to do. doesn't always work out, but that's where I start. What do you do to help yourself stay focused? I think shooting for halfway is really important. Um, I never try and shoot for 50,000 words from day one. I shoot for 25,000 words. Um, and I know if I can get over that bump, then I'll make it the rest of the way. Um, I mean, as far as staying focused, I am just one of those people that is super motivated by like the pretty little line graph that's on the <laughs> NaNoWriMo website, just seeing the little line go up every day and like making sure that my bars are above the line of average, you know, I don't know, stuff like that works for me. I'm definitely like a stars on a calendar, like give me my gold star, you know. <laughs> um when you're writing an entire novel in a month, I would think that editing would take on a, a larger role than it might if, you, if you're writing it in a sort of slower process. How did, you alluded to this a little bit, but how did the disasters change from first to final draft? I think that sort of depends. The, the, I think the level of editing, um, all books need to be massively edited. And I'm not sure that I would actually need any less editing if I wrote slower. Um, I think I would just take longer to get there. Um, because that's just my process. With The Disasters, um, that was my first time writing like a whole fresh idea start to finish during NaNoWriMo. Because my very first book that I ever finished that was terrible, um, I had tried to write that book three or four times before that. I would get 5,000 words in and quit and then I would get 10,000 words in and quit and you know, finally I, I finished it, but that idea had been living in my head for a long time. With the disasters, it was start to finish NaNoWriMo, 51,000 words. And that was without the last like chapter and a half or so, because I, I needed to go back and fix some things before I could nail that ending, really. But I, I always knew like the emotional note that I wanted to end on. I have to have that before I start writing. The disasters really just it was like a, a coat of polish every single time. Every single revision, things got deeper. The world got more complex. The characters got deeper. Their interactions got deeper. Really, I think the characters are what changed the most. Um, not in terms of their personalities or anything. They've always been pretty much the same kind of people that they are. But the way that their rough edges like bump against each other got more complex. Um, and I think the biggest lesson that I learned in the course of revising this book is that I needed to be meaner to my characters. <laughs> um, I 
I want people to get along. I like books with happy endings. Like, I wanted them to be a big found family that flew around in space and had adventures. And that was coloring my writing of the entire book from the start. And you can't have people meet on day one and suddenly be, you know, like wonderful friends. They can't just sort of insta-click, not all of them. So I really had to go back and like give myself permission to make them kind of hate each other a little bit at the start and give them some points of contention. That's probably the biggest change. I, I'm i kind of connecting what you're saying now to something you said earlier. You said that in some ways character is the hardest part for you. Do you feel like you end up focusing on that more because it's something that is a little less natural? I mean, I'm so new as a writer still that I hesitate to make any kind of generalization, really, because I'm, I'm still just growing and changing so much with every single project. But definitely from the disasters to my next project, um, I started the second project from a character point of view. There is a fabulous book called Story Genius by Lisa Cron. Um, and so going into my second book, I really used the approach described in that book to develop the cast of characters and to really like hone in on that emotional arc before I ever wrote a single word. And I think that really did actually cut down on the amount of revision that the book needed ultimately, because I didn't have to go through a million drafts to kind of nail down how to express the character's, you know, more inner journey. You know, it was always there alongside the actual plot details. I mentioned this a little in the intro, but the, the Disasters has a very diverse cast of characters on a lot of different dimensions. And uh, one of the sort of most notable ones is that pretty much all the characters are queer in some way or another. How did you approach writing queerness? It was always a goal of mine from the start with this book, um, even though it scared me because back in 2014, publishing was very different. Um, and that was only four years ago. It really hasn't been that long. But in those four years, the We Need Diverse Books movement cropped up. Um, there has been a huge push for change, especially in YA publishing. There have been several big, successful, financially successful queer titles in YA. And so the doors really opened up during that time. But while I was writing this and while I was querying the book and trying to find an agent, that wasn't necessarily the case. So I went into it almost pulling back a little bit. It, like I wanted to queer it up even more. I wanted it to be like rainbows and unicorns everywhere. Um, but I was holding myself back uh, because I was so afraid of not being not being able to be successful in publishing because of it. But I wanted it. So I, I really just kind of went for it. I just dove into it and I got some really weird feedback from some critique partners along the way. Like I got asked like, you know, oh, what about, isn't there, what about that normal girl, you know? And I'm like, who the f*** is the normal girl? <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, you know, there was just, there was a lot of kind of inner like bad internalized stuff that I had to get through to really let myself kind of open up and embrace it. And once I did, I was like, cool, everybody's queer now. 
Um, and I'm just leaning into it now. Because, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, but that's not realistic to have every character queer. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, as a queer person, a lot of my friends are queer, you know, flock together and all of that. So I would say that's fairly realistic. Um, but also, I don't care if it's realistic because this is my fantasy future and I'm saving the galaxy. So everybody's queer. One of the things I find really striking um, is how well I think or how fully I think the queerness is integrated into each character's personality. So in a lot of books, you see either either like they're queer and that's all you need to know about them and nobody cares about like the other things that make a person human or it feels like an afterthought. And this book, it doesn't feel that way at all. Um, so I'm curious for you as a writer how how you strike that balance. I think it's a natural reflection of life in the real world as a queer person. Um, you don't walk around all day like, you know, gaily parking your car and gaily <laughs> baking your brownies and gaily going to work. You know, you just kind of do all those things. And I think that applies just as much to saving the galaxy. Um, I definitely didn't want to shy away from anyone's identity, but also like they're kind of up against a ticking clock and there's like some stuff going on. So the the romance is there as like a really light touch, but it's also just kind of a part of who everybody is and we move on with our lives because it doesn't need to be a huge thing. I love coming out novels. I love novels that sort of delve into queer identity and with those internal struggles, but that's not this book. This is an action adventure, you know, sci-fi explosions, fun times. One of the places where it struck me the most was when one of the characters comes out as trans. And part of the reason it's so striking is because it's it's halfway t through the book at that point, but it feels so seamless. She is providing this information as she's explaining, uh, answering a question from another character about why she made the sort of career choices that she made. And to me, um, I was struck by just the sort of matter-of-factness of it, that she um, had things that she was interested in doing and that she was denied. Um, so she kind of made the best out of the options that she had. I don't know. I found it really striking. I think part of that is, like, it's just a product of that character's personality. She's very practical um and she is never gonna let something kind of get in her way she just kind of says okay that's the way it is i am gonna move on and make sure that i am enjoying my life and doing something with my life that matters and that part in particular really made me nervous because i was so worried about doing any kind of harm to my own queer community. I always want to make sure that I'm doing things properly and in a way that is respectful to everybody and that will resonate honestly with people. Um, and it really kind of hurt me to even have to put any level of discrimination into the future. But realistically, I can't say that in all parts of the world, we're going to be there in 200 years as like tragic as it is for me to say that you know there's always going to be little pockets of resistance and little bureaucratic nonsense that goes along with gender and things like that and i i sure hope in 200 years it's different and that this problem would not have cropped up but 
yeah, I, I, I was worried about that part. And I did have um, sensitivity editors for, for several of the identities in this book. And that was one of them. So I'm very glad that it came across okay. So you also identify as queer. How would you describe your relationship to queerness and queer culture? Very complicated. <laughs> Again, I kind of grew up with a lot of weird internalized nonsense. Um, and my identity has shifted a lot over the years, especially just since writing The Disasters. Uh, almost, My identity has almost evolved along with the development of this book. And those were separate things that had nothing to do with each other. It just had to do with other things that I was reading and other experiences I was having. Um, but it really kind of colors history in a different way. Because of the ways I've identified in the past and the particular struggles that I've had, I've had a hard time integrating with any kind of in-person queer community. Um, so I really found my people online in fandom. Um, I have been a fan fiction reader and writer, uh, well, reader since I was a teenager, a very young teenager, since my family got our first computer back in middle school. I found fan fiction like within six months um, and only started writing my own a few years ago because again, too chicken to share my writing. That applies to everything. <laughs> But being part of that community was really my first exposure to queer relationships and fiction because you certainly weren't finding it on the bookshelves in the early 2000s. And I'm not just talking about fan fiction itself here either. I'm talking about the community that surrounds a fandom. So, you know, the places online that people hang out, the conventions, all of that, they are just all such safe queer spaces mm -hmm. when you find your little pocket of people um, and I found so many people that I deeply connected with and identified with. Um, and being in those spaces, I really got an education in, you know, the language of queer culture and the different ways that people are identifying. And um, everything was so much deeper than I ever thought. And it allowed me to dig in and find some better words for what I've always felt. Um, so it really fandom, I think, has been the most critical experience for developing my own queer identity. You were saying earlier that about three or four years ago when you started writing The Disasters, um, there was this sort of abiding belief that you couldn't have um, every character in your novel or most characters in your novel be queer because it, it was perceived as not true to life. My experience of fandom, much like yours, is, is, is like that. Like when you're in a fandom everyone around you is queer in in some way or another or at least is very very well versed in um queerness queer communities and and queer identities um <laughs> they really are these sort of fantastic pockets for me the most critical experiences were the ones where i got to take that to an in-person space as well um, where I would go to a convention and meet up with some of the people that I had met online. And, you know, it would be almost like two or three days of just total accepting welcomingness in a physical space where everyone around you identifies as queer in some way. And it was just the most, like, honest experience that I've ever had in my life. Um, and it's... It's always hard to go back to real life after having that. Uh, con drop is a real thing. 
Um, but having those experiences was incredibly important to me, even though I'm sad that I can't have those experiences in my everyday life. Um, very grateful to have had those experiences and grateful to fandom and all the wonderful people there um, for allowing me to have that. I'm Clara Shirley Appel, and this is the story behind the story. We're going to take a short break, then we'll return to my conversation with MK England. Hi, this is Mark Stone, Assembly Member from the 29th Assembly District, and I'm excited to welcome listeners to KSQD 90.7 FM K-Squid, our new community radio station for Santa Cruz County. K-Squid exists thanks to local fundraising efforts by folks who believe in the value that an independent, community-focused radio station provides. I welcome the chance to talk with you on the airwaves and share my ideas. Congratulations, K-Squid. I look forward to many years of quality programming. You're listening to the story behind the story on KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. For those of you just joining us, my guest is M.K. England, author of The Disasters. There are a lot of really interesting and nuanced portrayals of mental illness in The Disasters, and especially uh, various flavors of anxiety. Why was it important to you to put these aspects of your characters on display? Well, again, that's another part that's very personal to me. Um, I have dealt with mental health issues. Um, I mean, they were diagnosed early in college, but I can see in hindsight that they went back farther than that. But I've learned over the years that especially anxiety, anxiety especially presents so differently from person to person. You know, one person's symptoms are not the same as another person's and one person's experiences are not the same as another person's and there's just so many nuances to that and my particular flavor of anxiety i guess um is one that frequently brings on the comment like oh you seem so like calm and collected all the time and that's why i wrote case the way she is she is ultra competent and in the moment she can absolutely perform in a crisis. And that's very much the way I am. When there is stuff going down, I am there, I am focused, I am calm. Um, and it's after the fact. Or it's, it's in the quiet moments when your brain is not fully occupied that it starts to shred itself to pieces. Um, I wanted to portray a character that had more of that flavor of anxiety. And with Nax, I kind of gave him a different aspect of anxiety, which is that kind of constant framing of yourself and your identity in negative light and constant negative self-talk and to, to a point that is almost compulsive for him. Um, so I kind of took different pieces of my own experiences and what I've learned of others' experiences and just wanted to portray some different different ways of experiencing that. So what was it like for you as someone who, who does experience anxiety to write those kinds of scenes, to write that negative self-talk into Nax's internal monologue or to write a scene where Case has a panic attack? Nax's negative self-talk unfortunately came extremely easily <laughs> to me. Um, so that part just flowed very naturally. Um, writing Case's panic attack was hard. And I actually have a hard time going back and rereading it because it's so close to my own experiences that it almost like brings me back to that. And, you know, fortunately, I don't really have panic attacks anymore. Um, I mean, my book comes out next week, so who knows? <laughs> we'll see. But, you know, in general, I've learned a lot of strategies over the years. And I think I've gotten 
you know, I've learned to manage my anxiety better, um, but still going back and reading that scene is hard for me. So when you are reading that scene or when you are writing it, how did you go about doing it in a way that didn't set off your own triggers? I wrote that scene when I was in a good place. Like I was not feeling particularly, you know, mental health has its ups and downs. You know, there are always good times and bad times. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions is like, oh, you're going through a stressful time or bad things are happening. Therefore, your mental health is bad. Unfortunately, no, like everything can be wonderful and I will just be in a, a down a down moment, you know. Uh, I'll be having a bad couple of weeks where my brain's baseline is just way low. So I made sure that I was at a, a higher baseline um, when I was writing that scene. And I kind of tried to detach from it as much as I could, sort of step back and observe from the outside, like, what does it look like? Um, you know, observe it almost like a documentary. Like, you know, there's this one little detail that just sticks in my brain for some reason. Like, after I have a panic attack, for some reason, my lips swell up almost like I have an allergic reaction to something. Like, I don't know, like, you know, biologically what's going on there or something, but like just observing those little details from, you know, a safe removed distance uh, and then kind of listing them out gives me a layer of protection from that. You know, so still, I'm, I'm sure I could go back and read that scene when I'm in a good place and be okay. But if I am in one of those lower moments, then probably not a great thing to do. We're getting close to the end. So I think now is a good time to ask you to read a passage from the disasters. And uh, before you do, why don't you set it up for us? Without getting too spoilery, there is a part about halfway through the book where a heist has gone down and our crew is trying to make their grand escape uh, in a very fancy ship that Nax is a big fan of. <laughs> um, so this is a, a portion of their escape that will hopefully, you know, give a little taste of the, the fun of it. A fifth fighter appears on my HUD, joining the other four, boxing us in. But this one is directly above us, forcing us down. We're going to collide unless they match our speed. What in the hell am I supposed to do now? We are so dead. I've got nothing. I knew I'd probably kill us this time out, but... Unless... Case, I ask, my voice coming out surprisingly even. Can you give me any more power to the engines? I'm going to try something that might be... not good. Oh, lovely, Case says. We aren't using the weapon systems right now, so I can cut them off and rewrote that power. Other than that, all I can do is override some safety protocols and hope the ship doesn't explode. Are we in favor of that? Of not exploding? I ask, incredulous. Of the override, Nax. She snaps, her fingers flying over the screen. Do it, Asra says. My hand shakes over the throttle control. This is exactly the kind of thing that always backfires on me. I try to get too fancy, try to show off, try to push myself. But right now, if we have any chance of getting out of here, I have to do this. I have to. I blow out a slow breath. Okay, tell me when you're ready. It'll only take a... Okay, now, Case shouts, and I cut off the engines completely and shove the control stick forward, throwing us into a free fall. The ship screams in protest with some help from Asra but the fighters leap past us at full speed and we're free of the aerial blockade. I jerk the stick back up and for a sixth second we're sailing forward on our leftover momentum alone. 
Then I wrench the stick over, kick in the afterburner, open the throttle wide out, and case was not kidding. Without the safety engaged, this ship can move. It is unbelievably hot. We blow past the fighters, and I don't even bother with the evasive maneuvers that might slow us down. Just rely on out-and-out speed to get us up and away. The fighter formation wavers behind us for a moment, and I can imagine them chattering over the comm, trying to hail us, trying to figure out what the hell just happened. But fortunately, we don't have to listen to any of that crap. A thrill builds in my chest, like the swell of a shout bubbling under my ribs, and a grin tugs at the corners of my mouth. I actually pulled that one off. The atmosphere turns wispy, and its drag on the ship falls away bit by bit. Our momentum pushes my head back into the chair, crushes all my organs back against my spine in a way that will never stop being exhilarating. My grin turns cocky, and I roll my head over to share the moment with Case. If we can keep up this pace, we can make the A-jump in just over a minute. We're home free. Worst thought ever. What is wrong with me? As if summoned by my arrogance, a screeching warning erupts from the HUD, and I slam my foot down on the right rudder pedal, yanking the stick back and over. A rush of energy surges past us in the wake of an enormously fast projectile, the bullet winking away into the distance. The ground-to-orbit railguns. Not good. I can really see what you were saying earlier about writing scenes where you're piloting a ship. There's so much detail, but it all goes so quickly. Yeah, when I'm writing those scenes, those are some of my favorites because I really like to kind of sit back and close my eyes and feel myself like physically in that space. Like what physical forces are acting on the body and, you know, what does it feel like to stretch in this particular way to, you know, put your force down on your left foot while you're pulling the stick this way. And, you know, how does all of that work in a very like visceral physical way? Um, and really those scenes are just all about adrenaline. I want to feel like, you know, that, that sort of heart poundy, like blood singing kind of, you know, really intense, uh, I just want to have a very like in-body experience for those. Hmm. Do you find that you're actually performing any kind of physical acts to try to imagine those things or is it entirely in your head? Depends on the scene. Um, more so with uh, any kind of like fight scenes that are more down on the ground. Um, with piloting, there's only so much I can do. Like I can't really roll around my office in my desk chair. <laughs> I mean, I guess I could, but it doesn't, doesn't quite get the same feeling. Um, but for sure, with any kind of physical fight, I will definitely get up and like feel what it feels like to crouch in this particular way. And if I'm you know, moving from this direction to this direction, like what muscles are pulling and how does that feel? But I definitely have noticed that uh, when I'm trying to write an emotional scene or when I'm trying to write one of these action scenes, uh, it's not good for me to do that in public because I make a lot of very weird facial expressions. <laughs> so for something like the piloting, um, how much research goes into it? For the piloting... Um, not as much as you might think because I had just read so much of it already for years and years and years. Um, normally I put a lot of research into different things. Um, for the piloting, I didn't have to quite as much. Um, I did make a decision to rearrange the, the flight controls in a way that they don't exist on, you know, earth-based uh, flight systems. Um, because to my 
brain, you know, when you're flying in space, you just have a, a different... I ended up swapping the roll and the yaw so that, you know, one is on the stick and one is on the pedals instead of, you know, in a, in a typical plane, they're the other way around. Um, because, you know, if you think about it when you're in space and you're much more, you know, in a three-dimensional space more so than you are, not that like flying through Earth's sky is not three-dimensional, but um, space is infinite in every direction without atmospheric drag and, you know, there's just very different forces working on you. Um, so I thought that it made more sense to swap those and here's where video games come in. That's the way a lot of, you know, gamers who are doing space flight simulators arrange their controls. So um, that's probably the extent of the research that went in for piloting. What were the other areas in the disasters that um, you put research into? I did a little bit of research into some of the medical stuff. Um, FBI, please don't come looking for me. I swear I'm not like doing weird things with gunshot wounds. <laughs> um but really, most of my research went into um, portraying the, the various identities in the book correctly. Um, even though I have, you know, everybody in the book is in some way, there's a piece of them in my friend group or among my students I was working with or in my family. But I still wanted to make extra, extra, extra sure that I was getting things right. And so I did a lot of research on, you know, the Muslim faith um, on, you know, all, all of the, the various identities, uh, that are in there. So I know a lot more about Kazakhstan than I knew before. Um, I know a lot more about Pakistan than I knew before. Um, I, that was really important to me. What was the most satisfying part of the disasters for you to write? Definitely the ending. Um, like I said earlier, I always know that like emotional beat that I want to end a story on. And I just love to write towards that moment. And so when it finally hits, I'm just like, yes, yes, I'm so like pumped up. <laughs> um, and in the disasters, you know, the way the second to last chapter ends is just like this giant middle finger moment that I find so incredibly satisfying. <laughs> um, and then the the last chapter just wraps up in a way that I personally find very gratifying. Um, so I hope others have that same experience. This is your first published novel, and at the time we're recording this episode, we still got about a week before it launches. Ah. <laughs> Describe what the publishing <laughs> process has been like for you. How has your life changed in the last year or two? Gosh, it's been sort of eternal. <laughs> um, my publishing process has taken a little longer than normal. Um, we signed the deal, like, officially, back in maybe May of 2016 or something. And we signed it for a fall 2018 release date. That was just where they wanted to position the book on their list. Um, so I knew I was in for at least a two year wait. And being one of the very last debuts of the year um, has been more of an emotional challenge than I thought it would be. But really my my whole structure of my day-to-day -day life has changed now that this has really become a professional part of my life um and i kind of like it that way like i like structure i am not like a right in my pajamas kind of person like i gotta put on clothes and put on shoes and like sit down at my desk and do work um and i just i like to have things to occupy my time like i said with with cases anxiety you know 
my brain does not do well in quiet times. So I am constantly occupied. I'm constantly working on something. And so having publishing there, there's always something to do. There's always the next project to work on. Um, and I always have, you know, little ideas that are bubbling away and little things I can make notes on. And, you know, I'm always working on something. And I just find that very satisfying to have as part of my daily life. What's been the most exciting part of the process for you? I think the moments where readers have responded to the book have been incredibly special to me. Um, some of the earliest readers of the advanced copies of the disasters, you know, have become people that I interact with online almost every day and their support has meant so much to me. And just hearing people connect to the book in exactly the ways that I was hoping people would has been everything, you know, and you know, seeing the final hardcovers was also a great moment of just like, it is a real thing. It is a real object that actually exists now. That was also a neat moment too. What surprised you? How much dead time there can be between steps. Um, there, there were sometimes months between something being due or the next step of the process coming up where I was just sort of left to my own devices. And again, I like structure. So spinning my wheels and like waiting for something to happen is not my strong point. So I uh, am constantly like, what can I be doing? There must be something that I can be doing to help myself like in, in my publishing career. And they're like, no, really, there is like nothing you can be doing right now. Like go work on something else. But type A me is always like, there must be a thing to accomplish. <laughs> there, there really is not always a thing to accomplish. So here we are. Eight days before launch, what are you feeling right now? Mostly nauseated. Um, <laughs> I, I am a very weird blend of incredibly scared and very excited and eager for this to be over. <laughs> I kind of want to rip the band-aid off. I want to skip straight to the part where the book is out in the world. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to my launch party. I'm looking forward to you know, the short tour that I have planned right after the, the release day where I get to meet readers and, you know, meet some other authors and just, you know, travel around and see some friends and looking forward to all of that. But boy, this process has been so long and like seeing it finally, like not end because there's still, there's still another book coming after this and all of that stuff. But it's a big moment that has been looming in the future, just like a giant thing that is going to happen one day. So finally having that like off of my horizon, like I can't even imagine what life is going to look like in 10 days from now. So we'll see. So what's next? Um, Next is uh, a book coming out in roughly January 2020. It's another standalone book from Harper Teen. For this one, I'm pivoting genres a little bit. Um, it's still sci-fi, but there's magic in this world and it's not space-based. It's like in a secondary world. Um, so futuristic secondary world with magic, a wonderful prickly main character who is a Slytherin or she's a Hufflepuff that thinks she's a Slytherin. And I just, she was so fun to write and she is so damaged and I just want to wrap her in a blanket. Well, it all sounds great. MK England, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thank you for having me. This was fun. MK England's debut novel, The Disasters, will be released by Harper Teen on December 18. You can order it online or wherever books are sold. Next time, I talk to San Francisco author Charlie Jane Anders about her new novel, The City in the Middle of the Night. I hope you'll join me. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme.